Louie, I think this is the beginning of a beautiful friendship. Rose? Where we're going, we don't need Rose. No. I am your father. The greatest trick the devil ever pulled was convincing the world he didn't exist. You're listening to After the Ending, the only film podcast where we tell you what happens after the ending of your favorite films. And now, here are your hosts, Mike Spring and Phil Edwards. Hello, 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 and welcome back to After the Ending. I'm Mike Spring. And I'm Phil Edwards, and it's been a long, long time. (laughs) It has indeed. Uh, Thank you to everybody who stuck with us through a long bout of mini episodes. Uh, As we've said a few times, we had a lot going on. Uh, Biggest and most paramount among them was that I moved from one house to a new house. Uh, Well, new to us anyway. And uh, it was quite a big undertaking. So it involved packing up, you know, 15 years worth of collected junk mostly, but, uh, you know, (laughs) our lives and then getting everything moved and trying to start unpacking. And so actually I'm in my new office with my new uh, recording studio setup. Uh, So hopefully everything sounds great. But if for some reason I sound a little different, that's why it's in a new it's in a new room. So hopefully uh, it'll all sound good. But in, in case you're going, hmm. Mike sounds a little farther away than usual or something like that. Now you'll know why. Yes, and also, as well as the move, the other big things that happened were Mike and I met up at New York Comic Con for the second time, and you can we did a little rundown of that in a pre, one of the many episodes. But most importantly, and the biggest reason why we didn't do any main episodes was because Spider-Man and Red Dead Redemption 2 came out on the PlayStation 4, <laughs> uh, you know, and I've had to play some of them. Right. Yes. Yes, Phil actually has time for video games. <laughs> I joke, but they do take a bit of time. Right. Yeah, we, we filled you with, uh, we filled your ears with some wonderful many episodes, and you can still, if you haven't listened to them all, go back. There's some gems there. And apologies as well for not bringing you a Halloween episode, but... Uh, that got lost in a dark dimension. Yeah, it just got lost in the shuffle this year. So we will be doing our usual holiday episode, Christmas episode later in the year, but we'll have to pick up the holiday episode next year, uh, which is disappointing, but it's, you know, it's November now. So what are you going to do? Yeah, but I think that's, there's nothing else major coming up between now and Christmas, is there? So it should be clear sailing ahead for the uh, for main episode. Well, there's Thanksgiving over here, but we'll see what we can do. Well, that doesn't that. count, though. That's just... <laughs> <laughs> anyway, it should be mostly smooth sailing from here. Uh, as always, we'll pepper in a mini episode or two here or there as life dictates. But for the most part, we should have uh, be bringing you some regular episodes for the foreseeable future. Yes, and uh, before we head any further, I just want to give a shout out. I've been sent a, an excellent new book. It's called The Times on Cinema, uh, and it's uh, edited by Brian Pendre. But it's basically the ta- over here in the UK, The Times is a newspaper, uh, The Times and Sunday Times. And they've got a huge archives of film reviews, interviews and features. And they've taken some of the best ones and they've put them in this lovely book, uh, which looks at some classic films, uh, some not so classic films. But uh, it's got some great stories in there. Uh, it's, it's obviously very well written and it's worth checking out. Uh, it's hardback book. As I said, it's called The Times on Cinema. And I can recommend it if you're looking for something to get uh, for one of your cinephile friends for Christmas. It's where... It's worth looking. It'll be on Amazon and all the usual places you can buy books. Sounds good. All right. Well, Phil, do you want to go ahead and tell people what we're going to be talking about in this week's episode? Yes, we're going to be going after the ending of Van Wilder and The Fugitive. Which sounds like one movie. Van Wilder and The Fugitive. (laughs) That could be one of the, like a sequel. It's like (laughs) so many years later and Ryan Reynolds returns to the role. Yeah, yeah. 
Uh, but I'm also, uh, and Mike will now tell us all about what we'll be doing for our top 10 this episode. Yeah, this is a good, this is a big one, boy. It is our movies we missed from the 1980s. And let me tell you, not an easy list to put together. So uh, these are all the films that didn't make it into our top 10 lists of the 80s when we first did them, uh, either movies we've recently discovered or movies that just didn't quite make the cut, but it was tough to narrow this one down. Uh, this is going to be a fun list to go through. Yeah, lots lots of films which, again, didn't make the list, but yeah, I, I quite like the list I've got so far. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Yeah, but uh, it's always fun to go back to the 80s. It always is. <laughs> All right, well, let's kick off our endings, shall we, Phil? Yeah, do you want to uh, give a rundown of Van Wilder? Yeah, it's pretty simple. Van Wilder, that's Ryan Reynolds, is in his seventh year of school at Coolidge College. He pretty much runs the school, he's the big man on campus, and he can do no wrong. However, Van's father severs his financial support, so Van gets himself hired by a nerdy fraternity to throw a big party and get paid big bucks. He meets Gwen Pearson, played by Tara Reed, who works for the school paper, and is writing an article on Van. Also, her boyfriend Richard is a dick. <laughs> uh, he takes on an assistant named Taj, which is a highly coveted job, and Van decides he wants to graduate and crams to study for the one final that can make or break him. He just passes, and then he reunites with Gwen, who dumped her boyfriend, and they kiss as the credits roll to a mid-90s-sounding rock song. And that's Van Wilder, in a nutshell. Yes, uh, nicely summed up. It's uh, it's one of those ones, isn't it? It's a, it's a bit rude, it's a bit crude, but not as yes. rude and crude as some films, but it's uh, it's it's the first film I, I found, Ryan Reynolds. I think that was for most people. I actually yeah. watched it again just recently, because they just reissued it on Blu-ray and 4K Ultra for the first time on Blu-ray. Uh, last year, I think. And I actually was surprised at how funny it is. It, it holds up really well. There are like two scenes that are where all the rude and crudeness really kind of comes to the fore, which are a little bit much. But um, yeah. but overall, a pretty funny movie, I have to say. Yeah, and it was basically as well, it was watching this, I just you just got the feeling that uh, Ryan Reynolds would have been, it was like a young Chevy Chase. Yeah, yeah. Except- I always felt it. It was like a... a yeah, if it was done back in the, the 70s, this would have been a, a Chevy Chase role, really. Right. Well, and it is a National Lampoon movie. It's National yeah, Lampoon's yeah. Van Wilder, so I guess that kind of fits. But yeah. yeah, yeah, he's great in it, and I think it was easy to see that he would have at least something of a career ahead of him. Oh, most definitely. And he, he's done okay since. Yeah, yeah, seems to do all right for himself. I believe he's done a few more of the moving pictures. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I think that's correct. Mm. All right, well, Phil, why don't you kick us off then and give us your day after. Okay, then. Uh, Van wakes up a few days later with the mother of all hangovers. He's not the only one, but from what they can all remember, it was one hell of a party. A few more days pass, and the hangover has finally gone. Van is now sat in a diner with Gwen. They eat pancakes, drink coffee, and she asks the question, What are you going to do now, Van? For once, Van didn't have a snappy answer. He had no idea what he was going to do. And that's my day after. All right, I like it. Thank you very much. What's yours? What's going on with you? Well, after graduation, Gwen immediately gets a job at the New York Times, thanks in large part to her expose on Van himself. She agrees to get Van a position in the mailroom because his liberal arts degree doesn't have the job offers rolling in. And while Van claims he wants to start from the bottom and work his way up, he's actually unprepared for the reality of life outside of his pampered college existence. Here, nobody knows his name, his charm gets him nowhere, and he's basically treated like a lowly peon. It doesn't take long before he begins to bottom out, sinking into a deep depression. And that's my day after. Oh, that's just uh, poor Van. But maybe things will, uh, maybe things will pick up for him. Who knows? Yeah, being that charming and that, you know, looking the way he does, he's got nothing going for him. <laughs> I know uh. it must be tough. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, how about your immediate aftermath? Okay. Well, Van had spent the past few months researching different jobs and trying to get a few internships, 
We could try one here, actually, but we've got a space. But, <laughs> That's <no>. right. <laughs> uh, but nothing grabbed him. He was sitting in a coffee shop one day and feeling lost when he saw a flyer for a comedy open mic night. It struck a spark, and so Van went along to it. The first night, Van had absolutely bombed. He'd spent a while writing his material, but it just didn't land. Gwen had been ready to console him, but was surprised to see how upbeat Van was. He was buzzing with it all, and was already talking about the next time. And so he carried on. He kept bombing, but he had some good nights, and he found the times he just talked about life and people he knew, and the various parties he'd, he'd created over the years got the most laughs. Van had a focus. He'd found something he loved doing. And that's my immediate aftermath. I like it. I can see that for him. Thank you very much. Yeah, it's just, uh, yeah, he's in control when he's on stage. That's what I, think, what I was thinking, yeah, even yeah, if it I doesn't go that. very well. Yeah. Right. And he's got the personality for it. Oh, totally. Yeah. He just, uh, hecklers just wouldn't stand a chance against him. <laughs> That's right. Uh, but what's, uh, what's going on with your immediate aftermath then? Is it just going to be Depression City? Uh, maybe a little. After a few months, Van stops showing up for work and gets fired. He starts hanging out in Central Park and feeding the pigeons. He wears fingerless gloves for no particular reason, which make him look homeless, even though he's not. Gwen starts to consider breaking up with him, but frankly, she's so busy at work, she doesn't have time to. One day after a particularly big fight, Gwen storms off to work and Van wanders aimlessly for a while. He ends up back in Central Park and as he makes his way to his usual spot, he sees there's a homeless man sitting there. Van tells the man, who looks exactly like Morgan Freeman, that he's sitting in his seat. The man replies, Just because you're hurt doesn't mean you're broken. Cities fall, but they are rebuilt. Heroes die, but they are remembered. Get busy living or get busy dying. (laughs) It's the magic of risking everything for a dream that nobody sees but you. Van looks at the man, shakes his hand, says thank you, and runs off. And that's where we're going to leave it for now. (laughs) Very good. Is that basically quotes, Morgan Freeman quotes from every different movie? Yeah, it's from a bunch of his movies. Yeah, it's got like uh, Million Dollar Baby, Shawshank, uh, Deep Impact, uh, a couple others in there. Yeah. I like that, though. It all works as one speech. That's very good. I like that. That, Yeah, thanks. I I don't know. I I just love the idea of like you know morgan freeman randomly showing up in this ryan reynolds movie and just throwing a bunch of you know morgan freeman-y quotes at him and, and inspiring him yeah. I don't know, it just popped in my head and i liked it so there you go brilliant i like that okay thank you all right well let's see how yours wraps up then let's see if uh, he takes the comic world by storm okay well van sat behind the desk the light shone brightly and he sipped some water as the makeup artist powdered his face he was nervous but excited he thought back to those many nights doing stand-up and how he'd eventually cracked it the venues had gotten bigger He'd made a few stand-up DVDs and had gained a place on Saturday Night Live. He'd been there for a few years, both as cast and writer. That had led to his own show and a couple of movies. But now here he sat, the new host of The Tonight Show. Wow. Uh, The crew member before him was counting down. Three, two, one, showtime. And that's my long term. I love it. That's great. That's a perfect gig for him. Yeah, thank you very much. I just just saw this nice progression. And it it kind of fits in with the whole National Lampoon thing as well, with the Saturday Night Live you know the the, the right. rivalry they had back in the past when it was all starting off, but I just uh, I just like that. I like seeing him doing something in the public eye. Yeah, yeah, I agree. I think I think he uh, I think he would definitely gravitate towards that for sure. Cool. But what's going on with your long term then? What's uh, what have Morgan Freeman's inspiring words made Van do? All right. Well, Gwen sits at her desk in her forty fifth floor office. She gets a text on her phone from Van saying, "Look out the window." She looks, but all she sees is blue skies and the city skyline. No, look down on the street, he texts her. She looks as far as she can, but the people look like ants because she's on the 45th floor. Just come down here, he finally texts. Gwen hops in an elevator, and when she gets to the ground floor, she finds Van outside the building holding a boombox over his head that's blasting the song In Your Eyes. (laughs) He finally turns it off and says, Jesus, Gwen, what took you so long? I've had this song on repeat for like 15 minutes. 
People are starting to get pissed at me. I think that hot dog vendor is about to skewer me. What do you want, Van? Gwen asks. I've seen the light, Gwen. I've got it all figured out. I'm going to write comic books. I've got it all mapped out. My first book is going to be about a character who's an unkillable mercenary who talks too much, just like me. His name is Dead Cool or something like that. I don't know. I'm still working on the name, but that's not important. What is important is that I know what I want to do, and I want to do it with you by my side. And with that, they once again kiss as the final credits roll to a mid-90s alternative rock song. Oh, excellent. Oh, I like that. <laughs> Thanks. Yeah, I could see him writing cover books as well. That's cool. Yeah, I like that. Yeah, dead cool. That reminds me of something. I can't think what that is. <laughs> right? Mm. It could work. It might need a little yeah. finessing, but I think it could work. <laughs> yeah, it reminds me of a DC character, Deathstroke, but now I'm thinking of something else. Uh, right, <laughs> right, but something different. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, oh, it'll come to me anyway. <laughs> no, that's very good. I like that. <laughs> thank you, thank you. All right, so that is our endings for Van Wilder. Phil, do you have any Wilder trivia for us? I certainly do. Oh, the trivia puns are back. And as good as ever. <laughs> So. Yeah, which isn't saying a whole lot. <laughs> yeah, if, if any Americans out there who, you know, sometimes Americans don't always get sarcasm, I was being sarcastic then. Thanks, Phil. So here's some of the trivia for uh, Van Wilder. Uh, some of the story beats were based on the college life of a guy called Bert Kreischer. That was written about originally in a Rolling Stone article called The Undergrad, and Oliver Stone optioned the rights to that article, that eventually became Van Wilder. Colon Blow Powder, which uh, is in the film, was also featured originally in a Saturday Night Live commercial back in 1989. And at one point, Van Wilder says, you shouldn't take life seriously, you'll never get out alive. And this was uh, from a Bugs Bunny cartoon from 1960. There you go. And that's Van Wilder. I like it. All right, well, let's move on then to one of the bigger action hits of the 90s, The Fugitive. Yes, yes. Uh, 1993's The Fugitive. Uh, great movie. It was originally a TV show as well, obviously. Right. Uh, this was uh, this is the one from, I'd say, 93, directed by Andrew Davis and starring Harrison Ford and Tommy Lee Jones. Yeah, it's a great film. It's a lot of fun. Uh, Phil, why don't you go ahead and give us the events of the movie? Okay, well, yes. So C Chicago surgeon Dr. Richard Kimball, played by Harrison Ford, he finds his wife, Helen, has been murdered by a one-armed man. They fight and the one-armed man escapes. Uh, nobody else sees this man. And Kimball is arrested and found guilty and sentenced to death for the murder of his wife. However, Kimball escapes from the prison bus in a, in a dramatic train crash scene, and he goes on the run to find the real killer. Meanwhile, Deputy Samuel Gerard, played by Tommy Lee Jones, and his team chase after Kimball. Eventually, Kimball finds out that it was all part of a conspiracy. His so-called friend, Dr. Nichols, and the one-armed man had planned to kill Kimball, as he had found that a new drug that was trying to get released would cause liver damage and would not be approved by the FDA. Uh, he faces his friend, uh, Tommy Lee Jones, turns up, there's a few more chases, action scenes, and eventually uh, justice is served and Richard Kimball is found innocent. There you go. Nicely done. Thank you very much. Uh, so what do you think of The Fugitive, then, as a film? You know, I, I really like it. I mean, I think that's not an unpopular opinion. It, it was a big smash hit film. Um, it's a very... Yeah, but it's yeah. one of those movies that I think you forget how enjoyable it is. Oh, yeah. I th yeah, I know what you mean. You know, you sit down and you're kind of like, oh, The Fugitive. Like, you don't kind of go out of your way to watch it, but then you catch it on TV and you watch, like, the last two-thirds or the last half of it. And you're like, gosh, this is a really fun movie. Like, it's a really good just action thriller. Um, you know, you forget. It got nominated for a lot of awards, too. A lot of Oscars and Golden Globes. And Tommy Lee Jones won almost every single supporting actor award that year. For, I mean, for yeah. everything. And he's great in it. But, yeah, I, I really like it. I think it was a great way to take this classic TV show, boil it down into a two-hour two movie, and, and make it really fun and exciting. So yeah, I like I like it a lot. Yeah, it's a great film. I really enjoyed it. It's got a, an excellent supporting cast as well. Yeah, it really does. Uh, lots of f familiar faces like Julianne Moore, Jane Lynch, uh, 
Joe Andreas Casulis as well. He was yep. great. Yeah, Joey Pants as well. He yep. was. Uh, yeah, but uh, yeah, a great one. If you haven't seen it in a long time, it's worth, well worth uh, a revisit. I agree. But uh, that was uh, what happened in the film. What, what's happened with your day after then, Mike? All right. Well, Doctor Kimball tries to return to practicing medicine, but the damage that comes from his conviction for murdering his wife is too much. Even though he's been exonerated to the public at large, he's still a murderer. However, he settles a lawsuit for the death of his wife with the pharmaceutical company that Nichols worked for and is awarded almost $100 million. He takes a few months off and travels the world a bit, spending time on beaches and tropical paradises, but pretty quickly he begins to get antsy. He feels like he needs to do something more with his life, even though he's financially set. So he returns to Chicago and sets up a meeting with Agent Gerard. And that's my day after. Okay. Mm, I like it. Thank you. I'm intrigued. Thank you. <laughs> uh, meanwhile, though, what's going on in your day after? Okay. Well, after Gerard dropped him off, uh, Richard Kimball walked around his home. Everything was covered in sheets. He eventually found a bottle of whiskey and had a large drink. He uncovered more of the furniture and looked through some boxes that had been packed before the trial. He found a photo of Helen, his wife. He sat down. It was like a punch in the gut. He'd found the killer and proven his innocence, but his wife was still dead. All because some people wanted to make some money off something that would harm others. He poured himself another drink, then another, until he fell asleep. And that's my day after. All right. I like it. A very uh, somber, but I think also, you know, true to life. Yeah, yeah. And Harrison Ford would act the hell out of that one. Oh, for sure. That's right yeah. up his alley. <laughs> yeah. Okay, what's going on then with, uh, with this call to Gerard? All right. Well, I'm not sure exactly what I can do for you, Dr. Kimball, Agent Gerard says as he sits down for coffee with Richard. I appreciate that you want to help, but law enforcement agencies aren't allowed to just take money from wealthy individuals. I recognize that, Kimball says, but there's got to be something I can do. Who are the people that need the most help? How can I put this money to good use? I may have one idea, Agent Gerard says, but it's a little unorthodox. A few weeks later, Dr. Kimball and Agent Gerard are sitting behind a table, hearing pitches from various crime-fighting experts. My name is Amanda Waller. Let me tell you how I plan to turn criminals into heroes. My name is Harold Finch, and I have an artificial intelligence software that can predict who will be involved in a crime. My name is Red Reddington, and I have this list. It goes on for hours, but nothing is exactly what Kimball foresees. Then a man walks in and says, My name is Harry Callahan. I used to be a cop. And that's where we're going to leave it for now. Oh, awesome. <laughs> Thanks. Oh, and I like it. I got all the references. Red Reddington took me a second, but uh, I, I got that one. Yeah, the, yeah, the blacklist for those yeah. who may not uh, be familiar with that one, but... Um, person of interest as well. Oh, that was gone yeah. too soon, that show. I like, I, I like that show. <laughs> yeah, yeah, good stuff. So that's my uh, immediate aftermath. Phil, how about yours? Okay, well, uh, with me, a few years later, Kimball had been busy. He'd moved to a small apartment as the memories of his old home just weighed heavy on him. He knew that wherever he lived, Helen would always be close in his heart. Despite being proven innocent, he'd been unable to return to work, partly due to legal reasons and also due to him not wanting to constantly have to take the looks that people still gave him. However, he was now a consulting surgeon and had focused his time on working to put through new laws and safeguards for the pharmacy industry. He wanted to ensure things were safer and more affordable for patients and also uh, cut down on the chance of similar things happening to other people that had happened to him. Too long the healthcare business had been just that, a business. Making money seemed to be more important than saving lives and that had to change. He knew it would not happen overnight, but it was important that he at least try. Maybe the terrible things he had gone through would help benefit others. 
and that's my immediate aftermath. I like it, but but Phil, I have to say there there's really nothing realistic about that at all. I mean, I mean, people in charge putting money above the, the welfare of other people. I mean, well, that's it, that's too far fetched, Phil. It's based on a film. It's not real life. Oh, you know? all right. We're yeah, just, I guess you're right. We're making things up. It's 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 you know. Yeah, I guess. I mean, I guess if you want to go into like that kind of science fiction fantasy realm, you know, I mean, that's not where I would have taken this movie, but I, I get it. I know what you mean. It's hard to comprehend. <laughs> it is. That. It but is. If you, if you think about it, you know, you can try and change your mind. Yeah, you'll see. You'll see yeah. what I'm getting at. Yeah, I'll, I'll, I'll get there. I'll wrap my brain around it. But, yeah. but nicely done. <laughs> Thank you very much. Okay, then. But what's... Uh, Back to you. What's going on then with Richard Kimball's investment? Who's he going to pick? All right. Well, a few months later, Dr. Kimball's money has been put to good use. The organization he's funding doesn't have an official name, but it's made of former police officers who got tired of being hampered by the system. So now they work outside the law to help people in trouble, clear the names of the innocent, protect witnesses from organized crime, and the like. Harry Callahan is one of the men who oversees the group, and he's joined by a tight-knit group of lieutenants that include T.J. Hooker, Clarice Starling, John McClain, Martin Riggs, Johnny Utah, and Olivia Benson. Kimball, however, fills an important role. In addition to bankrolling a large portion of the group's activities, he begins to evaluate all the cases that come to their attention, something the group has had limited time for, as most of the members are out actively protecting or helping people. It takes almost no time for Kimball to find a case that needs the organization's involvement. A CIA agent named Evelyn Salt has been falsely accused of being a spy and is on the run. And that's the my after the ending. Oh, Mike, I want to watch that. All those characters, that'd be amazing. <laughs> I know, right? There's some oh, good ones in there. <laughs> so, some, you know, some animation studio or some CGI, you know, get the younger fire these people so right. this can happen. Right, right. Oh, that'd be crazy. Yeah. <laughs> well, I'm glad you liked it. Yeah. Oh, very good. All right. Well, let's hear how this crazy, you know, f- alternate universe world you've come up with is going to wrap up. <laughs> okay. <laughs> okay. Uh, Richard Kimball had stayed in touch with Gerard. At first, it had been an occasional chat now and again, but over the years, it had grown into a full friendship. Gerard had sometimes used Kimball's medical expertise on cases, and Gerard had moved on from the U.S. Marshals. He had now gone into politics and had ended up state governor. After a successful few years, he was now running for U.S. president. At their semi-regular meetup, Kimball congratulated Gerard. As he was leaving, Kimball wished Gerard all the best. Then Gerard stopped Kimball and, after a brief pause, asked him if he was successful, would Kimball come on board? and help sort out the various health problems facing America. I think the Helen Kimball initiative has a nice ring to it, says Gerard. And that's my long term. Very nice. I like it. Thank you very much. Very cool. So you went with sort of the medical side, and I went with sort of the crime side. So we kind of took both the, the, the halves of the fugitive, and, and you know, we, we yeah. branched out from there. Yeah, I like both of them. I really liked yours. That was good. I want to Likewise. see that team up. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. I like yours has a little more gravitas to it, you know? Yeah, what team up. That's right. That's right. right. (laughs) All right. Well, Phil, do you have any fugitive trivia for us? I certainly do. Uh, Other actors considered for the role of Dr. Kimball included Alec Baldwin, Nick Nolte, Kevin Costner, and Michael Douglas. Uh, And for the role of Gerard, Gene Hackman and John Voight were both considered. Yeah, the wreck train and bus from the film are a tourist attraction in Dillsborough, North Carolina. A lot of the dialogue was improvised, including the police interrogation scene. And going back to the train, it was cheaper to use a full-size locomotive rather than creating the crash scene using miniatures, which is just crazy. Yeah, that is crazy, isn't it? Cheaper to crash an actual train. So just <laughs> right. make little models and do that. <laughs> Seriously. Yeah. I guess it doesn't say much about the value of trains these days. Oh, you can just go for a couple of quid over here. It's crazy. Apparently. God, I <laughs> wish I hadn't invested all my money in the railroad. That's it, yeah. Oh, damn it. <laughs> but uh, that's The Fugitive. Very cool. 
All right. Well, there's our endings for The Fugitive and Van Wilder. Uh, That's going to wrap up that portion of the show. Let's move on then to our 100 years of Hollywood in 100 episodes, wherein we take a year from the past century of Hollywood and share our top 10 favorite films. But this week we're doing our movies we missed as we have concluded all of our 100 years. We are revisiting the 80s this week to decide which movies uh, we either didn't make our cut or movies we've discovered in the time since we did the original years. And uh, as I alluded to earlier, this was quite a difficult list to narrow down for me. How about you, Phil? Oh, it certainly was. There was lots of uh, films, good and bad, which I wanted to include. Yeah, yeah, that's true, right? So, Some of them yeah. are just kind of like so bad they're good or just movies that you like, even if they're not that great. Yeah, there's lots lots of films that still didn't make the list, but it's 1980s. There's full of many, many films worth watching. Yeah, I mean, obviously, we both love the 80s. So this, you know, this is no surprise that this is one of the toughest lists for us. But uh, let's get into it. Phil, you want to kick us off with your number 10? Yeah, my number 10 is one of those really bad films. But I just I've always had a soft spot for it. It is. uh, It's the 1982 action film called Megaforce, Hmm. which uh, stars Barry Bostwick, who basically it's uh, it's about these two fictional countries, uh, almost at war, one of them can't defend themselves. So they get in touch with this uh, group of a secret army made up of international soldiers, a bit like G.I. Joe, and they've got advanced weapons and vehicles, and the Megaforce leader is called Commander Ace Hunter. Nice. And he gets together this this group of his, his like small army. You've got these futuristic-looking cars which and, and motorbikes and weapons and things, and they wear these, these grey jumpsuits, and it all looks really dated. It's really naff. It's real bad. It's just... <laughs> it's one of those... It's one of those... Thumb, it's, it's, it's so tongue-in-cheek... Uh, um, Barry Bostwick is just amazing. The action scenes aren't that action-packed. <laughs> right, right. I have to admit, I've never seen it, so I, I don't have an opinion on that one, but it sounds intriguing. <laughs> put it put it on your list. I will do that. <laughs> All right, well, my number 10 is, it turns out it's actually a Disney movie, but I didn't know that when I put it on my list. It wasn't only it wasn't until I went to, to look it up to you know check my facts on it that I found out it was a, a Walt Disney film, but it is a live-action movie, not one of their animated hits. Yeah. It's from 1983, and it is Never Cry Wolf. Uh, with Charles Martin Smith, who is one of the more unlikely mm. lead role actors <laughs> in a film. Uh, but uh, basically, it's about a, a researcher who goes out to sort of study these wolves that the government thinks are kind of a menace to the caribou population. And he kind of goes and sort of lives with them or lives among them and tries to learn from them and, and become part of their tribe and stuff. And it's a really interesting film. I saw it you know, I was in, I think, like middle school. And uh, it's one of those movies with large portions without as much dialogue. But I've always liked Charles Martin Smith. He's a great character actor. See from The Untouchables. Yeah, yeah, that's him. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And, um, you know, it's it's, there's some really neat stuff with the wolves. And it's just kind of one of those pictures that, you know, it's it wasn't, um, you know, crazy memorable or anything like that. But it's just kind of a neat film to watch and and see the story of him learning, uh, you know, how these wolves really live uh, and that they're not this danger that people think they are. So I like it. It was one of those ones that. Kind of had always sort of been on the edges of my memory, yeah, and I thought yeah. I'm putting it on here for this list. Cool, that sounds really good. It's sort of like a like a, a solid movie. It's just one of those. Yeah, yeah, okay. yeah exactly. Yeah. yeah, it's not it's nothing you know gangbusters, but it's a good solid entertaining film. Yeah, I don't think I've ever heard of that one. Okay, brilliant. Okay, yeah. okay. Well, my number nine is uh, uh, from 1982, directed by Werner Herzog and starring Klaus Kinski. It's Fitzcarraldo. Mm. Uh, and Klaus Kinski, God, that guy has an amazing face. Always scared me. <laughs> yeah. Uh, <laughs> He plays, okay, a guy called Brian Sweeney Fitzgerald, who's an Irishman uh, who lives in Peru, and he's known as Fitzcarraldo. Yes, perfectly makes sense. That's not really any part of it. (laughs) But uh, he ends up, he wants to build an opera house, and he's got this this steamship, this huge steamship, and they're going up the river, 
uh, to get to this, uh, uh, there's this place where they can get rubber uh, from the trees there in the Amazon basin. But to get there, they have to take this steamship over a steep hill. And it's uh, the, the, the main part of the film is him and the crew and some of the, the indigenous people uh, trying to get this, this ship over a hill. And it's a big steamer. You know, I just it's um basically for the film when they're making the film, they really did have to get this ship over this hill, and it's just it's yes because it's Werner a, Herzog is a madman. That's why. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> and and Klaus Kinski is also a madman, and right, together they right. made this film, and it's just yeah. I mean, my description there. Part of you, if you haven't seen it, part of you's probably intrigued, but then you're also thinking, why do I want to watch a, you know a, a ship go over a hill? Right. Be because it's when you're watching it, you go, they they really did that. And they yeah. didn't. They didn't use like all you know. Have like a thing on the other side with like chains pulling up on a, on a motor. They were they were really doing the damn thing. So it's it's this story which is based on some events, certain events, and they really. It's just it's it's breathtaking that the it's basically the characters what they were doing it was a total folly, and the filmmakers it was a total folly. But it makes this thing this this crazy intense drama, and you can't help but watch it. Uh, these these people trying to do the impossible. Right. And yeah, it's, uh, that's my number nine. Yeah, this is one I've wanted to see for a while, but I haven't gotten around to. I have seen some of the other Herzog and Kinski, uh, you know, team ups, but this one I, I haven't yet. And I, I do definitely want to. So it'll get there sooner or later. Well, my number nine is from 1984, and it is Dreamscape, starring Dennis Quaid and Kate Capshaw. Oh, damn, I forgot about that one. Yeah, <laughs> yeah I this is one uh, this is one I had not seen when we did 1984. I just saw it for the first time recently um, yeah. when Shout Factory put out a new, a new Blu-ray for it. And it's about this um, this technology lets people, you know, lets you go into somebody's dreams. Dennis Quaid plays this kind of cocky guy. He goes into people's dreams, to try and help them. Uh, but there's this other guy in the program and he's a bit psycho and he starts to twist things. And there's this really great kind of it starts off as kind of like a sci-fi thriller, and then the ending is almost more like a horror movie when they're trapped in this this like nightmare dreamscape. Uh, but it's a cool it's like flick. A snake guy, or something. Yeah, yeah, big big yeah, snake yeah. guy. Yeah. Um, I, you know, I thought it might be because it's 1984. I thought it might be really cheesy, but it actually holds up pretty well, uh, minus some you know hairstyles and fashions. But I always loved Dennis Quaid, and and this is one I just had never gotten around to, and I'm really glad that I saw it because I, I like it quite a bit. Oh, brilliant! Yeah, I think I last saw that like the early 90s. That film. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's not one that's kind of lived on in the public consciousness all that much, but it is it is worth checking out. Yeah, because it's got uh, Christopher Plummer and Max von Sydow in. Exactly. Good cast, that. Yeah. yeah. Cool. Okay. Well, that's uh, my number eight. My number eight takes us to 1984. It's a science fiction comedy drama, weird kind of film written and directed by Alex Cox, who also went to uh, my my school. He was a few years before me, but he was in the same oh, wow. school. He's from my my area. Cool. Uh, uh, but it's a uh, Repo Man, which stars Harry Dean Stanton and Emilio Estevez. Uh, and Emilio Estevez plays basically this punk thug kind of guy uh, who ends up teaming up with Harry Dean Stanton's Repo Man. They go around. Getting repossessed car, they go around repossessing cars. People owe money on, uh, and also, but it starts with this policeman finding this car. Opens up the trunk of the car or the boot. Uh, there's a flash of white light, and he's vaporized. And then Harry Dean Stanton and Emilio Estevez get this this car with something in the back, and it's that's just part of it. It's more like a MacGuffin. It's one of those ones you watch late at night, and it's it's kind of cool. Yeah, but you're never quite sure what's going on. It's very low budget. Uh, there's a few moments where you laugh, but it's it's just one of those ones where I'm always every time I watch it, I'm always I'm always intrigued and drawn into it by these characters and what they're doing. But that's my number eight. Very good, I like it. All right, my number eight is a slasher film from 1984. It is Silent Night, Deadly Night, uh, which sees oh, yeah, a, yeah. a uh, deranged killer dressing up as Santa Claus and killing people. And how can you go wrong with that? 
Um, this is one of those ones that, uh, you know, was very notorious. I remember seeing the, the, the box in the video store when I was a kid all the time. But, of course, I wasn't allowed to watch movies like that as a kid. Um, didn't see it until a few years back. Uh, but I really liked it. You know, I, I have a soft spot for slasher films. The idea of someone dressed as Santa Claus killing people is kind of fun and twisted. And um, it just it holds up as a good 80s slasher. It's not a great film, per se. But if you're in the mood for, you know, a good kind of 80s slasher, a classic horror flick, that's not Freddy or Jason or Michael Myers. This is a fun one to pop in. Cool. Yeah, it's a, that's a good film, that, yeah. Thank you. Well, it's, I, I enjoyed watching that, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Since I've seen it, but yeah, cool. Okay, my number seven is uh, from 1983. It's uh, written and directed by David Cronenberg, so it's got lots of body horror. It's Videodrome, starring James Wood and Debbie Harry. Uh, and James Wood, he's like the president of a TV show, a UHF TV show in Toronto, Canada. And it deals with, like, he likes dealing with all these, like, uh, larger-than-life kind of shows, you know, the weird stuff, things which, you know, you, you want to watch, but even, like, car crash TV, that kind of stuff. Yeah. Uh, it's sort of, he's, he's not happy with the lineup, and then he comes across this, uh, through various reasons, he, he comes across this new TV show, this channel, this, uh, which is being broadcast from Malaysia, uh, and uh, it's just, it shows weird stuff. It's, 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 it shows people getting tortured and are murdered, and it basically just... He keeps watching it, and it, but it affects the James Wood's character. It all gets weird, and then he's uh, he's not sure. It's, it seems like his body's changing. He he like he's it's like his, his body's twisting. He gets like a, a VHS slot in his stomach and things, but you're not sure if it's all in his head and things like this. But it's it's David Cronenberg. It's it's weird, creepy, twisted, and again, it's another one of these ones where okay, you want to look away a little bit, but you just pulled along because you're going, what the hell's going on? And it just drags you through. And it's uh, my number seven. Very cool. I uh, I have not seen that one. Um, I'm aware of it, obviously. Just one I've never gotten around to. Yeah. Long live the new Flash and all that. <laughs> yeah, sure. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I, I, yeah, it's... Uh, I'm not sure whether you like it or not. Yeah, I don't know. Probably it doesn't mm. sound like my kind of thing, to be honest yeah, with you. Yeah, I, I've, yeah. I've not been a, necessarily the biggest David Cronenberg fan, but I do like some of his films. He's not a director yeah. who I, I don't like at all. So he's not like a David Lynch, you know? Yeah, yeah. All right, cool. Well, my number seven is a film from 1985 called White Knights, starring Mikhail Brishnikov and Gregory Hines. Oh, crap. I forgot about that one as well. Yeah. I remember seeing the trailer for that one. Yeah, wow. yeah. I loved this movie yeah. when I was a kid. I've never seen the movie, though. Oh, yeah, it's really good. Yeah, it's really good. Uh, Brishnikov plays a Russian dancer who defected to the U.S. like eight years before the events of the film. And then the plane that he's on is flying over Russia and it crashes and he's stuck back in Russia again and they want to keep him and he wants to escape. So it's a bit of a thriller. But it's got some, some some kind of, it sounds weird to say it has some dance scenes in it. It's not like a musical where it's all of a sudden people are dancing. It, it's, you know, it's, he's practicing yeah, yeah. the ballet and Gregory Hines is a dancer. There are some very, you know, impressive dance moments that fit in the context of the film. It's not a musical. Uh, but it's a really good film. It's more of a drama, but it has some thriller aspects to it. Uh, Barishnikov was actually very good in the lead role, and Gregory Hines uh, is, is great as well. And it's just it's kind of a neat film. It's a, a product of its times, a very Cold War era film. Um, but like I said, I, I always really enjoyed it as a kid, and I thought it would be a fun to mention it in this list as well. Yeah, it's a good. That's, I'm glad you reminded me. Of that yeah, one. it's worth tracking down if you I'll haven't have seen track it. Track it down because I've never I've never seen it. But yeah, it was always one of those ones you'd always have the you get a video from the video shop and. There was always one of the trailers which was on there. Yeah, yeah. And I think that Lionel, Lionel Richie had a huge hit song that he, they did a music video on MTV with clips from the movie and that played yeah, all, the time, yeah. all the time, all the time. Wow, cool. Okay, gotta love the eighties, man. Takes us back. <laughs> My number six is uh, it's directed by Martin Scorsese, but it's I would, it's, it never quite feels like a Scorsese film, but it's uh, from nineteen eighty five and it's After Hours, and it stars Griffin Dunn 
and lots of other people you'll know Tommy Chong, Terry Gar, uh, Cheech Marin, Catherine O'Hart, loads of people. And it's uh, basically about one guy, uh, Griffin Dunn's character, who's trying to make his way home uh, in New York City over one night, and he just ends up getting stuck in places, meeting oddballs, various anything that can go wrong does go wrong, and it's just he just got to get from one place. He's not going to go far either, New York City, but it just goes wrong, and it's all over one night, and it's very funny. It's a little bit again, it's another odd one, but uh, I've always liked this one. But it is, it's, it looks, it looks beautiful as Martin Scorsese's films always do, but it never quite feels like one of his films. But uh, it's, it's a great movie and uh, probably not as well seen as some of the other Scorsese films. But uh, I do, I do like it. But it's my number six. It's a good choice. I, I haven't seen it actually. As we know, I'm not the biggest Scorsese fan. I have been trying to fill in the gaps in my, you know, viewing of his films just so that I can have a more informed opinion. Um, but that's yeah. one of the ones I haven't gotten around to yet. Oh well, uh, when you get to see it, though, let me know what you think. I will do that for sure. Yeah, yeah. All right. Well, my number six is a tie between two films that I think are really among the cultiest of cult classics on my list. And they are Streets of Fire from 1984 and Remo Williams, The Adventure Begins from 1985. <laughs> uh, Streets of Fire uh, stars Michael Pere and Diane Lane. And it is a musical, but it's like a rock and roll street musical. Yeah. Uh, and it's really great. It's a lot of fun. I had never seen it until um, like a year or two ago. This is definitely one of the ones that I had discovered recently. Um, and it's really fun. It just has that feel like it's almost like if John Carpenter made a made a musical back in the 80s, you know? Okay, I've not, I've not seen it. So. Oh, it's very cool. It's like an action thriller movie with these rock and roll numbers mixed in, you know? Um, but <laughs> it, it's really fun. And and to it's, be honest, it sounds dreadful. Yeah, I guess I can see that. <laughs> uh, but it's one of those movies that, you know how you watch some movies from the 80s and you're like, oh, this is kind of cheesy, like, uh, it's all right. But then you kind of yeah. watch some from the 80s and you're like, this is cheesy, but it's so fantastic. Oh, I know what you mean. Yeah, proper eighties cheese. Yeah, right. sometimes that's that's just perfect. Yeah, that Streets of Fire. It's it's really fun. Uh, and then Remo Williams, the adventure begins. Is uh, Fred Ward, who's always great as kind of this, uh, you know, cop. They fake his death. He joins this secret agency called Cure, and he's sort of like a like a street level secret agent type thing. I guess they were trying to make like a like a New York version of James Bond or something. Yeah, I don't it's know. like based on a series of books, I think. Yeah, 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 right, right, right. Um, but it's a lot of fun. I like Fred Ward. It's got some neat set pieces. Obviously, the the you know the low-budget nature of it and the special effects aren't so great, but uh, it's a fun movie that I, I enjoy. So that's my number six, two cult classics. Yeah, I remember when I was young, I loved Remo. Uh, I, I just I loved all the bits of the training and stuff he was doing and yeah. all that kind of thing. Yeah. But then I saw it, I saw it again a few years back. Yeah, I know it I doesn't just, hold up. I, that I well. just went, oh no. <laughs> yeah. I really wish I had. I wish I just kept the memories of it. But because uh, I, I did, I used to love it so much. And I, I may be including it on my list with a little more nostalgia than facts. <laughs> yeah. But uh, I think it keeps it keeps getting mentioned as well that they're going to do like a new version of it because, as I said, it's based on a series of books, but it's been in development hell for so many. Thanks since that one. Yeah. Since the original. But uh, hopefully one day we'll get another one because I do. I like the whole idea, the character and the concept. Right. Right. It's a good thing. Yeah. Agreed. Cool. Uh, my number five is uh, Cinema Paradiso from 1988, uh, an Italian drama film. And it's all about uh, a film director goes back to his, his hometown, a small little village in Sicily. Uh, and then he has memories. Flash, he flashes back to his childhood, where he was uh, when he was a kid. He went to the movie house called Cinema Paradiso, and he became friends with the uh, the projectionist Alfredo. Uh, and they watch films together from the projection booth. Uh, and the local priest doesn't like all the romantic scenes, kissing and stuff. So Alfredo edits them all out. And it's it's a film about the love of cinema and the effect cinema can have. Uh, it's just it's beautiful. Uh, it's great characters. Uh, 
and the fact it's all you know it's 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 all it's a film about film and it just if you're passionate about the subject then it's just it's a beautiful film to watch and you just it just makes you go wow and just give, leaves you with a good feeling inside and also probably lots of tears right but it's a, it's a classic and it's my number five good choice another one i have to admit i have not seen and i do know how well revered it is uh as a film so it's it's on my list just haven't gotten around to it oh yeah it's a it's a it's one of the if you like film, it's one I've, you should check it out at least once. Yeah, for sure. All right, well, my number five is a comedy from 1984, and it is All of Me, starring Steve Martin and Lily Tomlin. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's it's a great it's a great physical comedy role by Steve Martin. You know, Lily Tomlin plays this rich woman who uh, arranges to have her spirit, her mind, transferred into the body of a younger woman. But something goes wrong, and she gets transferred into Steve Martin's body uh, by accident. He's her lawyer, and, and he's in there with her. So it's the two of them fighting for control over Steve Martin's body. And he just does some amazing, really amazing physical work where he's, you know, Steve Martin on one half of his body and Lily Tomlin on the other half of his body. And it's it's a fantastic physical performance. But also on top of that, it's just a really funny movie uh, directed by Carl Reiner. And obviously Steve Martin and Lily Tomlin, they're not on screen together much, but they, they talk a lot, you know, in his mind. And even just in that, they're terrific together. So uh, I really love this movie. It's a, it's a great 80s comedy. Uh, and it's really, I think, Steve Martin at, at, you know, doing some of his best work. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's been a long time since I've seen that one, but I have fond memories of that one. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, a nice choice. Cool. Okay, well, my number my number four is uh, a Coen Brothers film from from 1984. It's uh, Blood Simple, a proper neo-noir kind of kind of deal. Uh, it stars uh, Francis McDormand and John Getz and Emma Emmett Walsh. It's basically about this couple who meet up. Uh, she's married, but they have an affair. And she, her husband is is a lousy guy. Hires a private detective to see what's going on. People get shot. People die. People think another person's dead. Lots of double crosses and and miscommunication things like that. But it's this proper. It's a bare bones noir film with these characters just trying to make their way through this this stupid situation that they've got themselves in. And they think they're doing the right thing, but it it doesn't end up quite working out as they planned. It's a uh, I mean, like lots of some Coen Brothers films just end up being about nothing in particular, but this one, yeah, it's a tense, it's a tense little movie, and it's uh, it's one of the earliest ones, so it's uh, it's worth checking out if you've not seen it. Good pick. I, you know, I want to say I, I have seen this one, but I, it's been a long time, and I can't remember for sure. But I'm I'm ninety nine percent sure I have seen it, and I do think I, I liked it. So yeah, it's it's good. It was also the first major film of uh, cinematographer Barry Sonnenfeld. Oh but, right, uh, who went on to become yeah. a big director in his own right. Yeah. Yeah, very, very cool. All right. Well, my number four is this is a new discovery for me, and it's not one that I would have necessarily expected to make my list or to even make it this high because it stars Jean-Claude Van Damme. Mm, okay. It is 1989's Cyborg, which I I don't generally love Van Damme's films, especially the films from the 80s. Well, or the more recent stuff, to be honest with you. Of all those 80s action guys like Stallone and Schwarzenegger and Dolph Lundgren and all those guys, Van Damme was always the one I had the hardest time getting... Uh, you know interested in yeah there's only like a, there's, there's only a few of his films that i really like yeah and even those most of them i've kind of gone back and revisited i haven't liked them very much except for time cop which is the least van damme van damme movie <laughs> so i i was very surprised when i watched cyborg just a few months ago and i really really liked it um it's this post you know uh, dystopic future post-apocalyptic whatever you want to call it and you know he plays this guy who uh is up against um, this really evil like leader of the bad guys, and he's sort of helping these a couple other people. It's your very typical kind of like you know good guy and girl on the run from the the overwhelming force of you know 
road warrior looking bad guys. But it, um, I don't know, there's something about it I really liked. It's got some really great action sequences, some good fight scenes. The villain is like properly creepy. It just, the, the world feels real and lived in. And again, just the action sequences are really good. And for some reason, Van Damme's character in this one is, I think maybe because he's more sympathetic of a character. He's not just the, the you know, the muscles from Brussels, the, the cocky, you know, French guy. He's a little more damaged. So it makes it more interesting. But I really liked it. And I was I was surprised by how much I liked it. So this is a new one for me, but that's my number four. Cool. Yeah, I remember seeing that one. It must have been close when it came out. And I remember the time being thinking it was a bit slow and everything because but that's i probably enjoy it more now yeah i think so i mean i i don't know i didn't find it that way but you know okay my number three is uh the unbelievable truth from 1989 which is a comedy drama written and directed by hal hartley it stars robert burke and adrian shelley and it's basically a guy called josh is released from prison after being convicted for manslaughter uh and there's this uh audrey who's a high school girl she ends up meeting and they they sort of fall in love uh well they they get on but it's it's uh, it's just about people, damaged people kind of meeting, but you're not quite sure exactly why, who he killed, why he was in prison, things like that, how he was caught. Uh, but it's just, I remember seeing it many moons ago and it just, it stayed with me and every time I've seen it since, it's just, it's a good solid drama with some quite funny moments. And yeah, it's always, it's always stayed with me, but that's the unbelievable truth from 1989. Very cool. Yeah, Robert Burke as well also unfortunately starred in, he was Robocop in the third Robocop. Oh, movie. right. <laughs> but he's done lots of other brilliant things. Sure, sure. That's not a movie I'm actually very familiar with, so I, I, I have no comments on that, but good choice. Yeah, I think it was one of those ones that was on this thing, I think I've mentioned it before, but back in the 90s, there was a show called Movie Drone, which basically had, it was actually Alex Cox, the guy I mentioned it with Repo Man. He presented it, they did this little intro for each film talking about how it got made and these... Uh, you know, he'd point out little scenes and things, and I'm sure that was this was one of them. It was usually the obscure ones, the kind of films you've not heard of. But uh, yeah, it's a good film. Very cool. All right, well, my number three is a film I'm excited to to bring up on this list because I know it's a film that you're a fan of and that I have not, I had not seen. Uh, okay. And it's been on a couple of your lists, I believe. Um, but it is from 1983, and I just watched it for the first time a couple months ago. It is The Dead Zone. Oh, excellent. Brilliant. Yeah. yeah. Okay, cool. Yeah, starring uh, Christopher Walken, of course, and based on a Stephen King book. And it's about a guy who suffers a brain injury, and then he becomes kind of clairvoyant. He can touch people and see their futures. And uh, Martin Sheen plays this politician, and when he touches him, he sees kind of basically the end of the world and uh, then tries to stop him. And um, it's just a really cool movie you know that's it's, it's yeah, done yeah. very well walking is great and it martin sheen is fantastic it's just a neat story um it's you know it's 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 done told well from start to finish and i really just enjoyed the heck out of it so that's oh, my number three up. yeah oh, that's fantastic yeah some great shots in that as well like uh, in the snow and things like that yeah 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 really just a well-made movie you know from start to I means well acted well directed well scripted everything about it just works well oh that's brilliant i made up yeah i thought you i thought you'd like that <laughs> okay well uh my number two is uh it's from 1981 it, i'm looking at the film version but it was also a tv miniseries it's the same thing but obviously the miniseries was longer but it's das boot by wolfgang peterson starring jürgen proschner as a the captain of a U-boat during World War II. And it's basically just following him and his crew going through the trials and tribulations of being at war in this tin can under the war in, in the oceans. It's it's great. It's it's it looks at, you know, there's got some very it's so many tense moments, both on the submarine and on shore and things like that. Uh, you you look at all these amazingly well written and well acted characters and showing the effects that that first of all being on a submarine has and then being at war. It's a hell of an experience. It's very tough at times, but uh, it's my 
number two. Excellent choice. This is one of those infamous movies that falls under my list of I've seen half of it. Yeah. And I have never finished it. So it hasn't appeared on a list yet because I really need to get around to seeing it. Uh, somewhere I have it and I can't, I don't know where. It's in a box somewhere. So, uh, but I will get around to finishing it one of these days. Yeah, I think there's been over the years, as I say, it was a mini series as well. And they condensed it down for the films. And there's been different versions over the years. But I think the, the most recent one was a, a director's cut back in the late, late 90s. Right, right. All right, well, my number two uh, was one of the bigger hits of the 80s, but it wasn't on my original list. It is a comedy from 1987. It's Three Men and a Baby. Oh, lovely. I do like that film. Yeah, I do too. It's uh, starring uh, Tom Selleck, Steve Gutenberg, and Ted Danson, and directed by Leonard Nimoy, actually, of course, Mr. Spock. Oh, yeah. I always forget that. <laughs> yep. But, yeah. it, you know, it was a massive hit worldwide, made a ton of money. Um, but it's just, it's a good funny movie and it's a great concept of these three kind of swinging bachelors who you know are all friends and they end up taking care of this baby who could be any one of theirs and and they you know over the course of the film they learn about being dads and it's 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 sweet um and it's charming but it's just there's a lot of humor in it based on people who have no experience with babies trying to raise a baby um it's a fun film it didn't make my original top 10 list for 87 because you know the 80s are tough a lot of good movies um it's not a movie that i go back and watch all the time but I do really enjoy it. And a great cast. I mean, Selleck and Danson and Gutenberg are, are terrific together. Um, and the, each character is a, a very unique character. It's not just three guys who are all the same. Yeah, yeah. And then, of course, I think Leonard Nimoy did a good job directing it. So that's my number two, Three Men and a Baby. A good film that, uh, you know, was a big, big hit back in the day. Yeah, good pick. Thank you. Okay, well, my number one, uh, I'm surprised it wasn't actually the thing from the year. It's from 1988, and it is uh, the black comedy Heather's. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, written by Daniel Waters, directed by Michael Lehman, starring Winona Ryder, Christian Slater, and lots of other people. But it's basically four teenage girls, three of them called Heather in a, a high school, and Winona Ryder joins them. And then Christian Slater's bad boy turns up and people start dying. Right. It's very, it's very dark. Yes. But it's also very funny. Yes. Uh, it's got some great scenes, great moments, great lines. I've always had a soft spot for. I've always had a crush on Winona Ryder, basically. But uh, right. she's just she's just brilliant in this. Uh, Christian Slater is just amazing in it as well. Yeah. Uh, and it's it's just it was recently being reissued. It's been it's been on cinemas again because it's had a four K restoration. Blu-ray and all that kind of stuff, and it's just it still stands up, well worth a watch, and that's my number one. Yeah, good choice. I uh, I think that was on my list originally. That's why it's not. on Yeah, I think it was. One. Yeah, yeah. Because yeah. I've always been a big a big Heather's fan as well. So yeah, very cool. But uh, that's that's my number one. But what's uh, what have you got for your number one? All right. Well, my number one is Stakeout from 1987, which stars. I, oh, I forgot about that one. <laughs> it's funny Damn when it. you go back to them all, isn't it? Yeah. I uh, yeah, it's uh, Richard Dreyfuss and Emilio Estevez uh, and uh, Madeline Stowe, and it's uh, it was directed by John Badham and it's um it's a kind of an action comedy about two cops who are staking out a a an escaped convict's ex-girlfriend and then one of the cops falls for the girl which of course makes things complicated and um I, I've always been an Emilio Estevez fan yeah, yeah you know of all the Brat Pack actors he was always my favorite I wish he hadn't stopped acting but him and Richard Dreyfuss are terrific together it's a funny movie it's got some good action scenes it definitely has that like late 80s buddy comedy cop action feel to it. You know, it fits along right alongside like a Beverly Hills cop and like a Tango and Cash, you know? Oh, yeah, definitely. Yeah. That yeah. actually make a good triple feature, you know? But I, I always liked this movie. It didn't make my list originally, again, just because the 80s can be tough. Um, but when I was looking at the list again, I was like, man, I, I love that movie. And I remember seeing it a few times in theaters and several times on home video since then. So it's been a few years. I want to revisit it just because I like it so much. But 
Uh, it's a lot of fun. So Stakeout is my number one. Oh uh, yeah, an excellent pick. I remember I, Richard Dreyfuss and really rest of us. Their chemistry was, was superb. They, they were together. The two of them were were fantastic. It's not a match that on paper looks like it should work. Yeah. Uh, but they really did. I don't know if they hit it off in real life, but they hit it off on camera and, and it worked extremely well. Yeah, and I mean, I remember the sequel, another Stakeout being okay. Yeah, it was okay. But, yeah, yeah, but it was one yeah. of those movies that kind of didn't really need a sequel. I mean, it was a big oh, yeah, hit. Yeah, yeah. So I get why they did one, um, but not not really necessary you know yeah but i will add another stakeout to our list because we could do another another stakeout. <laughs> that's right <laughs> exactly all right well there you go so that is our top 10 movies we missed from the 1980s a lot of really good films uh and definitely some films that neither of us have seen from the other one's list so we both have some movies to check out yeah i want to go watch them some of them now <laughs> right. and revisit some of the ones that I, you know i've seen oh exactly yeah, cla- lots of good memories as well watching them yeah especially yeah. Video putting, you know, putting the video in and just sitting back and just mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. watching the same film over and over again. <laughs> Those were the days. Yeah. Good times. But indeed. All right. Well, there you go. That wraps up our list and that's going to start to wrap up our episode. But before we go, Phil, why don't you tell people what we're going to be talking about next week? Okay. So next time we're going after the ending of 12 Angry Men and The Dark Knight Rises. Uh, that should be uh, that should be a lot of fun, I think. Oh, it should be most interesting, Mark. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to do the whole episode with my Tom Hardy voice. <laughs> I don't know what you mean, <laughs> Okay, fair warning that next episode might get silly because there will probably be a lot of Tom Hardy voice uh, going on. So I apologize in advance. Yes, it should be a good episode. <laughs> It'll be something. I've lost the voice. I've lost the voice. Yeah. Damn you, Tom Hardy. <laughs> yeah, so they're the films we're going after the ending, but uh, Mike's going to tell us what the list, the top 10 list is going to be. Yes, it will be our top 10 movies we missed from the 1990s, which should be just about as fun as the 80s and probably just as difficult to pick because that's kind of my wheelhouse, the 90s movies. So uh, I'm not looking forward to trying to narrow those down, but that'll be our list and those will be our movies and this will be our episode. So with that, we will thank you greatly for listening. As always, I'm Mike Spring. And I'm Phil Edwards. And we'll see you next week. After the ending. I mean, there's a button for Wi-Fi on there, but I've hit the button several yeah. times and I've done all the things it tells me to do and I yeah, can't wi- Wi-Fi and printers both both separately cause problems on their own, so together, you know, it's, it's <laughs> right. like heart to heart. Right, it's, it's like a murder. vortex of evil. <laughs> Yeah, so I wrote them a while back, and I've I've, I've not read the, I've read the, the like the day after on each one, and I've I've left the right. others. I haven't read that because I want to surprise myself. <laughs> <laughs> I can't see what could possibly go wrong. I know. I'm going, that doesn't make any sense. What? Right. Oh, this is just a rough draft. What idiot wrote this? We need to get new interns. <laughs> I just wrote. Why can't I think of any good ideas a hundred times over and over again? Oh, it's crap. I'm just hold on. I'm just going to shout to the interns. Get me some cucumber water now. <laughs> And some avocado toast. Just got to throw some at them. <laughs> oh. <laughs> Phil, the Foley artist, strikes again. That was amazing. I threw a pen and it bounced off everything. And I ended up back where I picked it up. <laughs> nice. That's awesome. He had no idea. No. Let me do that last bit again. For once, Fran didn't We're not have a rusty snappy... at all, are we? I know, yeah. I know. But anyway, so once we're done, I got to run over to the pet store and buy frogs. Because that's something I find myself saying every day. <laughs>